Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on February 28, 2018, focusing on the impact of tax reform on human capital investments and mobility. The panelists for the webcast were Scott Olson, a PwC tax partner and co-leader of our people and organization practice, Julie Barron, a PwC tax partner focusing on global mobility, Cindy Frederigo, a PwC tax partner focusing on employee benefits and compensation, and Craig O'Donnell, a PwC tax partner also focusing on employee benefits and compensation. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists focusing on specific issues around executive compensation, including the application of Section 162M, as well as some ancillary issues. Well, we've still got a lot to cover, so let's keep moving. <laughs> um, surprisingly, there's a lot of issues impacting these human capital programs. So, Craig, there's some specific issues around executive comp and then some ancillary issues that have occurred that are, again, direct provisions in the Act. Yep. Maybe you can take us through those. Yes, yeah, so I'll start, Scott, with my favorite, which is 162M, which has <laughs> developed a lot of talk in the last few months. Um, just to level set, 162M has been in place for 25 years, and it basically mandated under the old law that corporations, public corporations, can't take deductions for income over a million dollars for the CEO and the three next highest paid officers of the company. The old law also contained a performance-based exception that was a mile-wide loophole for companies to go through that allowed them to grant stock options and other performance-based bonus plans that escaped this deduction limitation. New 162M, the effect of this tax law, greatly enhances 162M. So now it has a lot of meat to it. So this is it for the government or for, for the, the government? Okay. Because there's a lot, of, a lot of lost deductions, unfortunately, okay. for our clients. Um, and so I, the way I would group this slide is into three buckets. The first is 162M expanded the coverage. The new law expanded the coverage of 162M in two ways. It expanded the entities that are subject to 162M. So now it includes companies that have publicly traded debt. And it includes foreign private issuers that trade ADRs in the U.S. Okay. So those are companies that were not subject at all before, and now they are. The second thing it did from an expansion perspective is it expanded the people subject to 162M, so the covered employees. As I said before, it used to be the CEO and the three next highest paid, and it also used to be that if you got paid something after you terminated, it was not subject to limitation. A lot of that has changed. So under the new rules, the CFO has been added to the mix. He or she had been in before, it had come out, now back in. So the CFO is now subject to these rules. The other thing that's happened is the designation of a covered employee has become permanent. So once somebody is designated as a covered employee, they are forever. Mm. And that includes after termination. And so all those post-termination benefits that used to be paid and that were easily deductible because they escaped 162M, now they're going to be subject to 162M. So let, let me stop you there and come back to Julie for a minute. You were talking about the allowances and some of the really enhanced mm -hmm. costs and in some cases, reportable income for people that are on expat packages. It sounds to me like somebody could end up in that top five group for one year because they happen to be on an assignment and, and got you know, a certain amount of benefits, moving expenses, whatnot. And now, but they're nowhere near the top five on a normal basis, and they're in forever. Is that does yeah, that ever absolutely. That you could possible? have you could have an individual who goes overseas and has some large foreign tax payments or large education costs because they have many children, so they could have five hundred thousand dollars of allowances that push them into that top bucket, and then they're there forever. Okay, wow. So those gross so ups we talked population. about could yes, get even more expensive yeah. if right. they do things mm -hmm. like that. And so what's going to happen as a result of all that is that group of covered employees is going to grow over time. 
it's not just going to be five. It's going to be these people that get tagged because they had big years. They will now be into the group of covered employees forever. And it'll go six, seven, 20. We've got some clients that are talking about 50 covered employees over time. Particularly if you buy other companies, you inherit their covered employees as well. So some additional administrative requirements in terms of tracking all exactly this Exactly right. right. So we people, always used to have to do a little of that, but now we got to be, be cast a wider lens. Exactly. There's a okay. lot more to track. Okay. So the second bucket on this slide I'll highlight um, from 162 on perspective is a new law eliminates the performance-based exception. So I talked about that as being a mile-wide loophole that existed before. That is gone. And so that means stock options, performance-based bonus plans, those are all non-deductible going forward, and there's no magic to solve that. That, unfortunately, is going to be the answer. That is a big change. Um, people would love it to be different, but that is a big change. The last bucket I'll highlight about the new law is it does contain a transition or grandfathering provision. And this is what we've been spending a lot of our time, I think all of us, talking about. There's a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to the grandfathering. What the rule basically says is that if there's a payment in a future year pursuant to a written binding contract that was in effect as of November 2nd, 2017, that that amount is grandfathered and can be viewed under the lens of the old law. So what that means is if it's a performance-based plan, like an at-the-money stock option that was granted before November 2nd, that is now exempt from these rules. Great news. It also means that payments to people that wouldn't be covered employees under the old law but are covered employees under the new law are exempted as well. So for example, the CFO, if he or she has a promise under a written binding contract that gets paid in a future year in which he or she is still CFO, under the lens of the new law, of the old law, he or she wouldn't be a covered employee, and therefore that is exempt from limitation. And also post-termination payments, a lot of these non-qualified plans, I think, that are out there, people would have to deal with as well. That's where people should think about those qualified plans and how to put more money into them. Exactly. <laughs> That's the answer to all problems, right? If you have a That's qualified exactly plan, right. it's actually one of the great ways to that mitigate a, this. It really is. And people are spending a lot of time looking at their qualified plans because then they can jack those things up, pay, deliver compensation through those plans, and then fund it and take a tax deduction. That's exactly right. So qualified plans are sexy again. <laughs> the other, let me just highlight one more part, Scott, yeah. about the, the transition rule. So the other big confusion is what is a written binding contract? Mm -hmm. Those seem like simple words, but nobody seems to know what they mean. A lot of plans that are out there have negative discretion in them meaning that the company has the ability, even though they've promised something to the employee, they have a, an ability to pull it back, even though they may never exercise that. There's some confusion whether or not that may cause that plan to not be a written binding contract. We don't know the answer to that. We look forward to the IRS giving us guidance. And from a practical perspective, just to highlight, this is all important when companies do their tax returns next year. And by then, we hope we will have IRS right. guidance to tell us what to do. But it's also important for tax accounting. And that's been the scramble the last mm -hmm. couple of months, that companies are trying to figure out, should I or should I not have a deferred tax asset for these promises that have been made that we consider grandfathered? Most companies are taking a conservative lens to that and perhaps saying, you know what, we'll take down the DTA if in doubt. And if we get good news from the IRS, we'll spring it back to life. Mm -hmm. Others are more adamant that they want to defend the fact that they have a written binding contract and see where it goes from there. Okay. So lots of confusion. We all look forward to IRS guidance on this. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, so that's the big one. As we say, big changes, but as you just mentioned, lots of unanswered questions. Um, probably some other things, though, that, that, that impact executive pay as well. So let's yeah. get into jump a couple of those. Let's zip through a few of these. So the 162 one we talked about applied to public companies to make sure people, that everybody is impacted by this law. This applies to private companies. And the issue here with 83i is that private companies that granted stock options and promises of restricted stock units to employees, when they exercised those options or delivered the shares, the employee faced a tax burden, but he or she couldn't sell the stock to get any cash to pay the taxes. So that's an unfortunate place to be in, and it makes those plans less attractive. 
Congress recognized that and said, hey, why don't we give some ability to defer that taxable event to employees to give them some relief here, which sounds great. And so the rule basically says that if somebody exercises a stock option at a private company or receives restricted stock unit delivery of shares, he or she can delay the taxation for up to five years, but no later than when there's liquidity. So once there's an IPO or a sale and they can sell the stock, that's when they got to fess up and pay the taxes. All sounds great. This is finally one that's good news. I've been talking about all these bad news ones. This one's good. The challenge is there's some rules with this that need to be navigated. The first, this doesn't apply to every private company that has a plan. It only applies if the plan covers at least 80% of the employees in the organization. Not all plans do that. Some do, but if you don't, you're sort of out. That's it. And so maybe this will encourage people to give broader-based participation, but we'll see. The other thing the rule provides is it doesn't apply to the CEO, the CFO, 1% owners, or your four highest paid officers over the past 10 years. Mm. So all the people with the big dollars who really wanted this relief, they can't benefit from it. So now this great thing has gotten a little bit less great once you go through the rules. The other thing to be aware of is this creates a bit of a burden on the employer. So it's a little unclear whether this is mandatory, but as currently written, we think that it is. Meaning that if a company grants equity to more than 80% of its employees, it's now availed itself of these rules and employees are eligible to take advantage of them. The law also requires that the employer give notice to the employees of the ability to do this. Mm. And if they don't give that notice, they face sizable penalties. And so in order to navigate those sizable penalties, every private company has to assess, am I giving qualified stock or am I not? If I am, I need to give notice and I need to help employees navigate these waters. And if I'm not, I'm not. So that's that one, a little bit of good news, thankfully. What about, um, I know carried interest has been a topic for tax, um, particularly um, at the individual level for a long time. I know there have been some changes on carried interest, but you know, did we get the reform that a lot of people are talking about? Good question. So I've been talking to clients about this one for 10 years. I think back in 2008, we kept saying this was coming. Carried interest legislation was coming. So we got carried interest legislation. But the good news element is it's very limited carried interest legislation. What the rule basically, and just to level set a little bit for folks, what carried interest is is a partnership interest given to an employee for services that basically gives the employee or service provider a right to reap the benefits of future growth in the pass-through organization without having to pay taxes immediately or make any investment immediately, but then they get the benefit of capital gain treatment on the flow through of income to them through the sale of underlying assets in the partnership or through the sale of the instrument itself down the road. So it's one of the greatest things in the tax law to get compensated through a profit interest. So and that's very common, let's say, in the private equity industry. Exactly. And, and other asset management type businesses. Exactly. Hedge funds, private equity funds love these because it's a great way to reap the investment returns that they're generating. So what this rule did is it specifically targeted asset managers. This does not apply to all carried interest, but for those that involve basically asset managers, private equity funds and hedge funds, the law now says that if the partnership harvests investments and those investments weren't held for at least three years, the holders of the profit interest don't get capital gain treatment, long-term capital gain treatment. So now there's a three-year holding requirement for that. So what this has meant for asset managers, they are now revisiting, should we be doing something different? Mm -hmm. So if I've got a lot of underlying assets in a hedge fund that I trade between one and three years, maybe I want to think, should I be taking a fee instead of a profit interest? Mm. This may tilt them in a different direction. And all the other law changes that asset managers are dealing with and the rate changes for corporations are forcing them to really reassess how they're harvesting the incentives in their products. The other part of this law, which is the good news piece, is if you're not a hedge fund manager or a private equity fund manager, and you're just a portfolio company executive who is holding a profit interest in an upper tier partnership that holds your company, 
nothing changed. Mm. This is great. So now you've got a little bit more certainty that the great thing that I've been getting or I should be getting, I can still get and get capital gain treatment down the road. Mm. So this one, a little bit of bad news, but mostly good news for some people. And it could have gone a lot further, as we all know. Okay. So the last one here, definitely didn't want to leave out tax exempts. We've talked about public companies, we've talked about hedge fund managers, and we've talked about private companies. Something had to happen to the tax exempt folks, and it did. This one is all bad news. And so the basic rule here is the government wanted to apply things like 162M and 280G, the golden parachute rules, to tax exempt companies. The problem is those organizations don't care about the deductions that get taken away from them as a result of 162M or 280G. So what this law does is it says, okay, if you want to give an executive more than a million dollars, or if you want to give them a sizable parachute payment when they terminate, we're going to take away, we're not going to take away a deduction because you don't care. We're going to apply a 21% excise tax on the organization. And so what this means is a tax-exempt entity that has its top five highest paid employees for this year or the prior year, if it pays them more than a million dollars, the amount over a million dollars is subject to a 21% excise tax. So that amount got a lot more expensive. So all the folks out there that root for SEC football teams and ACC <laughs> basketball teams and love your coaches, keeping those guys in place are now got a lot more expensive because there's now a 21% excise tax on what those folks are harvesting. So tax exempt isn't exactly what it used exactly, to be. Exactly, exactly. And it's, you know, some folks see this as being a little bit anti-competitive. So if you're competing for a basketball coach against the NBA, for example, that private NBA team can give that coach the same pay without having to face a loss deduction because 162M doesn't apply to them and they don't face this 21% excise tax. So tax well, exempt. similarly, I guess um, it's going to make the cost, right? So tax exempts, obviously people work there for many reasons, but they typically don't have as competitive overall pay philosophies. So it maybe puts them at a little bit of a disadvantage from a cost exactly perspective right. as well. Exactly so. right. And the one last thing I'll highlight, just because I skipped by it, is this, there is an exemption to this for medical professionals who are compensated for providing medical services. Okay. And so there's at least a little bit of a carve out there, but the higher ed folks and elders are sucked into this. Okay. We really appreciate you joining and, and listening to us um, share some information about the human capital issues. We'll look forward to seeing you all again next week on our Tax Reform Readiness Series. Thanks very much.